And good morning and welcome to The Skinny for Friday, June 16th. I'm Mitch Perry, senior political reporter for the Florida Phoenix, joined by noted author Ben Montgomery and Ray Roa, the editor-in-chief for Creative Loafing Newspaper. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Hey, How's hey, everybody doing? Much. Good to see you both. Uh, so we're back with a full show today. Thanks so, so much for those who listened and contributed last week uh, during the fundraising drive. Uh, so thanks so much for contributing to the station, trying to keep... WMNF Community Radio on the air, and we're still going to do it. We're still going to stay on the air here. So thanks so much for you uh, contributing your hard-earned dollars to this program. Now, later in the hour, we're going to be talking about history in Tampa and Hillsborough County, black history at that, with Fred Hearns, who you might have just heard a few minutes ago on uh, the, on the Down and Dirty here. Uh, he, of course, uh, Tampa, he's Tampa Bay History Center's first curator of black history. And Rodney Kite-Powell, the Tampa Bay History Center's director of the Touchdown, Touchdown Map Library in the uh, I think the historian of all things Tampa, Hillsborough County, basically, in this the community. Goat. So, yeah, he, he is a goat. Absolutely. Look forward to having him talk to him. Uh, that will be later in this program. But first, we're going to talk about this whole thing about book banning. Is it is it real? Is it really happening here? This whole wave that's been happening, not only, of course, in Florida, but across the country. Uh, and our first guest is not taking it lying down. Uh, so I want you to welcome to the airwaves Reagan Miller. She's the director of development for the Florida Freedom to Read Project. And she joins us this morning. Good morning, Reagan. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. So uh, as many of our listeners know, of course, local school, di- school districts in Florida have been pulling books off shelves or limiting their availability in stunningly large numbers across the state over the past couple of years, uh, in part due to legislation pushed by Governor Ron DeSantis and passed by the Republican-led legislature. So, Reagan, let's talk about your involvement and this organization. I you covered an event you guys had a couple weeks ago in Clearwater. I know you're a Pinellas County mom of kids in the school, a CP. But how did you get involved with all this? So I've always been involved in my kids' education. And what I started seeing and hearing was different teachers saying, hey, we're going to pull this book off the shelf because it talks about a gay character. Or in this particular picture book, a a child was or a a drawing had a BLM T-shirt and they were starting to pull those off. So I teamed up with um, my colleagues and, you know, we really started researching and doing public records requests, trying to figure out what was exactly going on in Florida. Right. And, uh, and how long have you been in existence? So we formally started as an organization in early last year in 20, uh, 2022. Um, but they, Jen and Stefana from Orange County had, you know, officially said that this was their mission back in October of 2021 at an Orange County school board meeting when somebody went in and read a couple pages out of a book out of context um, at a public meeting. Right. And so we know, of course, uh, this has been exacerbated or maybe just fueled by the legislation that's come down the last couple of years. We had, uh, let's see, last year, a book, a bill that passed requiring any library or instructional book to be reviewed by a district employee with a valid media specialist certificate to ensure that they don't contain pornographic content. Then there was, of course, the Stop Woke Act from 2022, which mandates that any discussion of topics such as sexism, slavery, racial oppression, racial segregation, and racial discrimination be done, quote, in an age-appropriate manner and in such a way that does not indoctrinate or persuade students to a certain point of view that is inconsistent with the principles of individual freedom. Um, and then, of course, last uh, this bill this year, actually, I guess that the governor just recently signed includes a requirement that any books objected to as pornographic or containing sexual content uh, be mm-hmm. removed within five days of an objection and remain unavailable to students until the objection is resolved. So this is really uh, fueling a lot of this. Um, Reagan, so let's talk about this. And uh, I, let me ask you, I guess, is there an 
there's obviously a lot of examples of things you can talk about throughout the state of Florida where uh, we've had some interesting uh, <laughs> books that are not being permitted to be read by all grades or what have you. What's the most egregious situation that, that you have come across in, in your opinion? The most egregious? Um, oh, goodness, that's hard to tell. I mean, you know, in Escambia County, we've seen English language arts teachers actually having books, you know, um, removed just because it's about the lived experiences of a black woman. Um, we've seen one parent in Clay County challenge hundreds of books, just one parent and get them removed. Um, and then recently, I'm sure you're all aware, you know, the um, Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman was removed. But the more the, the worst part of that situation was there was a book that's written for five year olds called the ABCs of Black History. And that was, you know, moved to the middle school library. And to read that, a book written for five-year-olds, the children at that school will not have to prove that they can read at a fifth grade reading level to have access to that book. So there are plenty of, there are plenty of. Right, right. So again, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Reagan Miller. She's the director of development for the Florida Freedom to Read Project. And she'll be with us for the next few minutes. If anybody wants to uh, uh, make a comment, you can uh, send an email to us at dj at wmnf.org. Reagan, Uh, Reagan, this is Ben Montgomery. Can you, um, can you profile the folks who are raising the objections? Is there a stereotype that they fit? They are very conservative. They are seem to be linked to just a handful of um, very conservative organizations. Um, a lot of um, it's organized. It's definitely very organized. Yes. So are they getting they who, have, who, who who's giving the marching orders? I, I wish I knew the answer to that. Mm. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Um, you know, there's a handful of people in the state that I can point to and say, you know, these people are definitely very involved, but I don't know where the marching orders are coming from. And obviously uh, a, a big factor, I would think, is the Moms for Liberty group, right? I mean, who has really come on the scene, not only who are created here in Florida and, of course, are now a big national movement. In fact, they're going to have their conference, uh, their national conference. I think it's in Philadelphia next month. Yes. Uh, DeSantis, Trump, they're all going to be there. It's it should be noted that the Southern Poverty Law Center just named Moms for Liberty. Thank you uh, for hate group. Ray for mentioning that. But <laughs> on, then, on what grounds, Ray? Do you know? Did, um, I'd have to look back at that. The hate report was very extensive. But, but I, I, to me, as a you know, just as a political observer, you know, it's just amazing uh, how big they've they've become in the last couple of years. What, what are your thoughts about that organization, Reagan? I mean, they're an interesting organization. I I am curious how big they are and mm-hmm. how much you know. I this was clearly you know, a, a move by the Republican party to engage parents. And it seems to be based in a lot of fear mongering, um, you know, that children are being indoctrinated. And I think when you actually go talk to parents at schools, that's not what they're seeing. You know, children, you know, people like their public schools, they like their teachers. So it's, it's interesting that it's, it seems to be a minority of people. And, you know, even in some cases we have chapter presidents that are not even parents. Of, of these of this organization. So now the thing I want to bring up to you, and I've talked about this. In fact, we had Jessica Vaughn, the uh, Hillsborough County School Board member, on a couple months ago about this because I had just covered. So back in March, it was Ron DeSantis had a press conference here in Tampa, uh, mm-hmm. and it was you know he it was headlined ex, quote unquote exposing the book ban hoax, and mm-hmm. I, I was there, and you know it was kind of stunning because one of the people you know his setup people said. 
We're going to be watching a video in a moment that's um, basically uh, kids should probably not be here for this. Like, what? what is this? this is like a governor's press conference. What are explicit materials right. to be viewed? And they, they showed a six-minute video, and it definitely fe- featured uh, controversial books such as uh, Gender Queer and Correct. Flamer that have been right. removed from Florida schools. Um, and, you know, and I this is really important to bring up this press conference because Governor DeSantis, ever since then, and not only him, but House Speaker Paul Renner, when, when people talk to him and talk about, um, you know, are you banning books in the state of Florida? He brings up this particular press conference and he specifically refers to the fact that uh, WFLA television was airing uh, a live feed of this on their Internet you know, dial digitally. And mm-hmm. they cut the feed um, because when they, some of these books came up and they were showing this in this video, again, it was pretty it was it was explicit. There's no question about that. So uh, the question to you is. When when um, he, the governor brings this up to say, like, you know, we're not, you know, banning books and we're, we're making books that are appropriate for certain ages and they bring up these particular titles. So what do you say to that? So those particular titles, um, I, I think a few of them are actually sex education books mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and none of them are part of the curriculum. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to get into whether I personally approve of those or not, um, but the, that was four books. We have had over a thousand books removed from our schools. So, you know, the fact that they were just able to pull out just a handful, and I think, and, you know, even one of them, you know, was a, was an autobiography of a person. And yes, and I've seen the images and they are shocking when you see them, but I think any book, I mean, I grew up in the eighties. And so, you know, we had the, where did I come from? What's happening to me? I think even if you put those images on a screen, Nobody would want to see <laughs> see the yeah, books. Right. So, you know, yeah. Do I? I think these are a lot of these books are cautionary tales, or you know, they tell you know tell kids about things that can happen or real lived experiences. Um, so it's hard to to say that those are actually pornography. And then you know, we could get into the definition of pornography as well, which that is you know it's supposed to arouse you. And I would question: are, is the intent of those books to arouse you? Right, right. Again, we're talking to Reagan Miller. She is with the group uh, Development for, excuse me, for a Freedom to Read Project. She's the director of development for that organization that is working uh, to try to combat uh, the book banning going on in Florida. And again, what you just said, Reagan, is, is I think really interesting and instructive. You said, yeah, four books, I think might have been six actually, but nevertheless, right. there's a thousand, you said roughly, that have been banned. So that is a tiny, tiny percentage. But that is, again, I, I bring that up because that's what the government says whenever anybody and he said it multiple times when he goes right. uh, on the campaign trail or being he's been interviewed by somebody about this he brings up that particular press conference uh he brings up the most shocking the most you know hardcore if you will of what's going on here um so so um what your group again i found you guys on twitter and i and i think mm-hmm. you, fi- you you have a great twitter feed because you really find things that are going up up and down the state which for any of us who are care about this issue it's a great re- repository of information to know because a lot's going on now you know uh Escambia county you mentioned that earlier they right. are um they're they've they're filed a lawsuit on this correct Correct. They are. Yes. Because the committees reviewed a few books and the committees voted to keep those books on the shelves. Um, I know and Tango Makes Three was one of them. And then the school board actually overturned what the committee had decided 
and voted to pull books off the shelf. So they are being sued in, in federal court for violation of First and 14th Amendments. Now, we've got somebody uh, who texted in here. Uh, Ernest has written in and uh, poses to you, Reagan. He says, it seems to me that this question of books in schools is an age-old argument being, where do you draw the line? I am sure that even your guest would not argue that elementary school libraries should allow magazines like Playboy or Penthouse. Also, I'm not sure she would argue that the story of uh, oh, 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 story of oh should not be on the shelves. So just take us back. Where do you draw the line? He asks. I, I, so here's the thing. Our media specialists are trained and they develop the collections that are in our library. So I think that that's the first thing is that we have to trust that our media specialists are doing their job and putting appropriate material in our libraries. And then we also have to remember that we've always had parental rights. And if you don't want your child to have access to a certain book, then you certainly have the right to say that your child can't have access to a, you know, a certain book, certain topics, a certain shelf, that you can do that. But then I think the, the next discussion is, who draws that line? Are we trying to you know, appease everyone because we all have different lines? Or are we trying to allow people to you know, have a, you know, a diversity of experiences. And, and what we're looking at is when parents have the, can make the decision to opt their children out of libraries, even in very red counties, that number is very low. Um, I like to think there's a silver lining in all this, Reagan, that is that uh, it serves to center books in the conversation. Uh, As an author here, it just reminds uh, children that books exist and they should be read. Uh, No, no, I I wonder if, uh, you know, I I think um, uh, somebody told me, uh, don't read Catcher in the Rye when I was a young man. Uh, It will change your life, they said. And of course, this is what you want. You know, you go after that book. And I wonder if that's not uh, sort of at play here as well. Like the, the sort of the don't read this one is not encouraging kids like read more diverse stuff than they might find in the classroom. That's wishful think thinking prob- maybe. I mean, I think it probably is. You think about the bluest guy in Pinellas and how many students yeah, showed up, speak right. out in favor of it. But the unfortunate thing is, what a lot of people didn't realize is there's two pages of the bluest eye that everybody was upset about. Hmm. And the teachers tell the students, hey, you might want to skip this. The media specialists, they know the students that are coming into their libraries. And if they're checking that book out, they're telling them, hey, there's sensitive information in here. And so you, I would rather my child be warned or have a teacher work through some of that stuff with them than them just going you know, to a little free library. And I'm not against little free libraries, but I would rather have that guidance from someone than just getting it anywhere. Right. So you know, and again- I'm sorry. Um, oh, no, no. I have to say that's the disservice that we're doing right now. <laughs> right. One of the things that you talked about here, Reagan, and what I've, you know, again, reading about these things and talking at the event that you guys had a couple weeks ago, I think I talked to one of the school board members, Pinellas County school board members who was in attendance. Which, mm-hmm. What does stun me about this is that the power of, I get parental rights and I think it's important, um, the power of one parent, though, to shut down a public, uh, a, a title for thousands or what mm-hmm. have you, right? And that and that mm-hmm. does not seem right on a certain level. I mean, we live in a democracy, not that you get to put these items up for a vote, but nevertheless, um, we have seen in some cases, well, going back to the um, uh, the Gorman poem, right, down in Miami-Dade, there's been a lot written about this person because people are interested, like, what is your issue here? Uh, right. and, and you read the whole thing and like, what's your, you know, and uh, we're giving a lot of power here 
to folks who, um, I mean, we just don't do that in a lot of other ways of, of we do policy or we, you know, are, we do our government. Well, we do. You're saying where one person can gum the system up. One person can have have the effect for everyone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, talk about that if you could. Again, like that seems pretty wrong, right? I mean. Oh yeah. I mean, I think there's been articles written that the majority of um, books that have been challenged, even across the country, are down to like 11 people. And I can point to certain people. I could name them in different counties that are our most prolific book challengers. And I and they they're not ashamed of it. They want these books off the shelves. And so yes, they have this power and they're going to have more power because, you know, once HB 1069 goes into effect on July 1st, um, if a book is is challenged for sexual conduct, that book has, as you were uh, yeah. alluding to earlier, has to be removed within five days. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and the next part of that is, that, that I would like to see is, okay, that's, you know, they have their right, obviously, I agree with that, but we have to be transparent with the rest of the public and say, okay, this has been challenged. And I think we need to come up with ways because the Miami-Dade incident, we would not have found that had we not done a public records request. No one was notified that books were removed um, and that your child no longer had access to it. So it's we. I think that we just need to be really transparent about what we're removing, you know, why we're removing, um, and, and then have a process in place for, let's talk about, you know, do we want this book back on the shelf? So Karen in Dunedin has written in, uh, she says, keep up the fight, Reagan. Uh, she says, all this book banning has brought these titles to the to the forefront. I'm an avid reader, two to three books in a week. This is a sure way the kids are going to want to read them, as, as Ben kind of alluded to. And then also we've got another note here. Oh, my God, this is such a small font. Let's see if I can bring this up. <laughs> uh, do I really want to read it here? The issue in everyone can drive by the modern Republican Party has nothing to do with the issues at hand. It's just um, strictly a divide between people who know what they're talking about and the people who merely know what they're supposed to say. The right of one parent to shield their child from certain books and concept is fun, fundamental to foundational to democracy. Uh, the movement to uh, for one parent to decide what every other child to read is fascism. Oh, Charles writes about that. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, what y'all missed is Mitch had his face two inches from the computer <laughs> screen. <laughs> 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 like, is there a font that small? Uh, that is Mitch Perry has to the, to the callers here. Social media. But um, again, we're speaking with Reagan Miller here. Uh, Reagan, again, you're now, so we, I, you know, I, I, you had an event a couple weeks ago. Uh, excuse me, I'm all choked up now talking about this. Uh, <laughs> and so what else are you guys doing to kind of, you know, to keep this, I mean, it's obviously in the news, but to to, to show this, this there's, there's, there is a group of folks uh, and it's a lot of folks who don't like this at all and want to and want to combat this. Right. I mean, so I would say you mentioned our Twitter. That's the number one place to go to see. We put, you know, we do public records requests every single day and we get tips from whistleblowers or tips from parents. So we know, you know, we don't know everything, but we'd love to have more information. So if people want to give us information, we'll do those public records requests and we make that information available um, on Twitter. Uh, We attend events pretty much most places that we're invited, we want to go, we want to talk, we want to tell, you know, our side of the story. And, you know, we're attending school board meetings. We're talking to our legislators. Um, How do you feel the Pinell, you're you're in Pinellas County. How do you feel the the Pinellas County school board has dealt with this issue? So they, I think they've stumbled a little bit out of the gate, but I think they've done the right thing. You know, I think our two biggest um, incidents were Ruby Bridges and the Bluest Eye. And both of those, um, you know, were challenged by, well, one even, Blue Eye was not even ever formally challenged. 
Um, and I think that was probably the biggest misstep was they they pulled it without really consulting with the community and deciding, you know, it was objection. I think one parent posted a YouTube video um, and then Ruby Bridges, it was one parent, parent complaint and within 20 something hours, they removed that as well. Um, so I think that those were some missteps, but I, but that's what I think they were. I think they were missteps in trying to navigate this new law because it says things like, well, the media specialist training says air on the side of caution and, you know, throws words like felony or losing your yeah. teacher certification. And so I, I do think that they're airing on the side of caution and then it's causing people to self-censor, but right. I, I, I trust Pinellas' leadership. I, I, I think that, you know, they're just, they're figuring, they're navigating it with the rest of us. Well, you talk about self-censorship and we talked about this on the skinny months ago, uh, Ben, if you remember, we were talking about, again, the self-censorship. Uh, I, because we saw those examples of, um, I think, uh, bi biographies of Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente. And right. again, the, the, the governor has pushed back hard on that and Manny Diaz, this Department of Education chair, and saying, we didn't ban that at all. What do you guys, the, the press is full of beans. You know, we, we didn't do anything about that. And they probably didn't. But again, these uh, school board folks are really fearful uh, if there's mentions mm -hmm. of racism in America that they're going right. to be in trouble for it. And so we better pull it off. And then, of course, then they put it back up the shelves, you know, shortly right. afterwards. And, and and we were happy to see it go back on the shelves. Yeah. That was a Duval County that you're speaking uh -huh. of in the Essential Essential Voices collection. And I and I can't remember the exact situation, but a teacher was fired, and and I think it made them nervous. Um, and they had the Essential Voices collection because they were trying to reach students who weren't reading at grade level. And so they thought that students being able to see themselves in books would help. You know what a novel concept, and it scared them, and they. They pulled that whole Essential Voices collection back off the shelves, um, and that was even before the Stop Woke Act or the Parental Rights and Education Act had passed. They were just pending legislation at that time, and that right there, there's your self-censorship. They were so scared that they pulled it at that point. All right. I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, again, we've been speaking for the last 20 minutes or so with Reagan Miller. She's the director of development for the Florida Freedom to Read Project. You can follow them on Twitter. As she said a moment ago, that's the best place to get the information, their updates. Uh, and Reagan, really appreciate what you guys are up to. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us here on The Skinny. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Reagan. And as we get our next guest... Uh teed up here. Uh, I think Ben asked a fair question, you know, li labeling Moms for Liberty a, a hate group, but then you have to ask that big question why. So, you know, kind of went back there. You know, they've been labeled as such by the Southern Poverty Law Center just because of their uh, approach to LGBTQ plus issues. Members of the group had, have said gender dysphoria is a mental health disorder being normalized by predators across the U.S. Um, they've been tied to the Proud Boys, a white nationalist group. Um, our website it's linked in the hate report uh, shows pictures of members of the Proud Boys flashing white power signs. So a great question from Ben, you know, just throwing out the hate group tag is definitely not um, fair, but there's a lot of evidence uh, to back that up. Uh, so thanks to uh, if Reagan. If you want to read more about that, they can find. They, they can, can uh, Yeah. The Southern Property Law Center just published their hate report. It's Right, crazy. Yeah, I mean, last week. Right. You're going to need to sit down for that, you know, and um, it's, it's very extensive and uh, you could probably flip through that for a long time, but it's eye-opening. And, and it, if you're the kind of person who likes to kind of check things and then see how they're going, like in the world, then it's definitely uh, worth a read. But um, we're going to move here a little bit locally. Two weeks ago, the uh, Tampa Bay History Center opened a new permanent exhibit, Travails and Triumphs, which, which uh, traces more than 500 years, yes, five centuries of, of people of African descent who have lived and labored in Tampa Bay um, area. We can't talk about the price tags of things on the air. Just want the guests to hear that. But um, our website uh, and their website has information um, on all this Monday, June 19th 
it's a good day to go to the museum. I will just say that um, and uh, make room in the evening because the History Center and the Tampa Housing Authority have teamed up to open up the doors to uh, downtown Tampa's century-old St. James Episcopal Church. Uh, longtime residents may notice that um, it's now in the Encore District, once a center for a black neighborhood colloquially known as the Scrub, which um, one of our guests talked about on the previous show. Um, Dr. Bernard Lafayette Jr. Uh, will will be there um, on Monday, uh, famous for his nonviolent protests, rolls in Selma um, and the Alabama Freedom Rides. Shout out to Alabama for for uh, Ben here. Um, MLK Jr. actually offered uh, the doctor uh, a position of a program director at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And uh, joining us today, remotely, one on phone, one on Zoom, Rodney Kite Powell, the History Center's director of the Touched Map Library, as Mitch alluded to, and Fred Hurds, Tampa Bay History Center's first uh, curator of black history. Two goats of, of Tampa Bay history. Welcome. Do we have both of you on the air here? I'm here. This is Rodney. And I think we have Fred on the phone there, oh, Mitch, I, if I'm you want to uh, bring Fred here? on. Um, okay, Fred, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for uh, making it two shows in a row here. Yeah, Fred, on, we uh, love it. It's Fred Hearns Day on WFNF yeah, this yeah. morning. And rightfully so. And, and Fred, I want to close out the show with you. I'm going to ask Rodney some questions here. For Rodney, like 500 years is a really long time. And in this exhibit, the uh, History Center opens uh, with folks like, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but uh, Estevanicio, uh, the first African to explore North America, um, folks enslaved by Spaniards, uh, plus some free people who willingly crossed the Atlantic. And uh, 1500 is a significant date there. There was a spike in enslaved people moving around the world. But I was wondering, Rodney, if you, if you could talk about about how some of these people ended up in Florida and, and what their lives look like and, and what documents the History Center used to research that. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank, and thank you guys very much for, for having us on. Um, <clears throat> you know, what, the thing that we really want people to understand, you know, throughout their visit to the History Center is that uh, Florida history uh, goes back a really long way. You know, I think a lot of folks who certainly who move here from other places, but even, you know, those of us who are from here, I think kind of get lost in the idea of, of Florida not existing before air conditioning and Disney and things like that. But well, we have a, a, a history that goes back, of course, you know, tens of thousands of years with the native people, but our recorded history uh, goes back to the early 1500s. Uh, and you're exactly right. You know, uh, people like Esteban or Estebanico, um, who was an enslaved African-born man who was part of the uh, the Narvaez expedition who came to the west coast of Florida, uh, you know, making landfall on the Pinellas um, coast in 1528 um, and taking part, really, he was not only the first, uh, one of the first African-born people to come to, to, um, to North America and come to Florida, but he was the first African-born uh, person to cross the continent. Uh, you know, the, the Narvaez expedition was a just a brutal journey. It's actually a book called The Brutal Journey. And most of the people on the expedition died. Um, and they also wreaked a lot of havoc with the native population. But there were four survivors who trekked from Florida all the way to the west coast of Mexico. And Esteban was one of them. And um, he, he gained his freedom, you know, when it was in a de facto way uh, in the process. Um, but But life for everybody was very difficult back then. But certainly as an enslaved person, uh, you didn't have the, the free will to do what you wanted. You were obviously told to do what you were going to do, and, and you had no freedom. Uh, and Spain did have a, a form of slavery, but there were some, some differences. Um, and, and the biggest one that, that really affected Florida history was you could not enslave uh, Catholics. 
And so Esteban was a Moor, an uh, uh, Islamic person from North Africa. So he was eligible to be a slave. He could be a slave. But, you know, Florida's uh, black history is tied in large part to the fact that the Spanish um, allowed a lot of, of escaped enslaved people from the British colonies and then what later were American uh, states to come into Florida and gain their freedom. Uh, so many did that, that there was actually a town just north of St. Augustine that was formed called Fort Mose. And it was a, a, a fort, but also a, a village where free blacks lived. It was the first free black settlement in what is now the United States. Uh, we also had a community uh, in the Tampa Bay area called Angola, uh, in the Manatee County area that existed in the late 1700s and early 1800s, uh, where formerly enslaved people had escaped into Florida and lived free uh, in Spanish Florida. And so, you know, we talk about all those things. And how do we know about those things? Well, we know about them in large part because of the records that were left, uh, the Spanish were meticulous records keepers. Um, and, uh, and there's actually a great project um, by Michael Francis, who's a professor at USF St. Pete, uh, who's, you know, diligently going through the Spanish archives and unearthing an incredible amount of information that he and his students. And so getting information from that and archaeological sources, uh, that's how we know about Angola. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of different materials out there that, uh, that we were able to access to, to gain knowledge of that 500-year history. Yeah, I think walking through exhibits, seeing the depth of, of everything in there and, and, and the proof, and then also knowing all the stuff you have um, in the back. So you kind of have this big picture um, of, of the history there. But this exhibit also touches on the U.S. Seminole War, a lot of the fighting that happened in the 1830s through the 1850s. Uh, Black Maroons got lost in the history of that, but that history comes back to the surface here. And this, and to kind of bring it a little bit more local, a lot of Tampanios are somewhat familiar with Fort Brook. I mean, they know it for what it is now. Uh, some of them are familiar with the history, but can you talk about um, some of the history of the role that Fort Brook played in tracking down and, and relocating Black Maroons? Yeah, you know, Fort Brook uh, was the headquarters for the U.S. Army, particularly during the uh, the second phase of the, the Seminole Wars. So there were, you know, tra- traditionally we think of the wars or the wars have been thought of as three distinct uh, wars that the U.S. government fought with the Seminoles, uh, but. <clears throat> the Seminoles view it in a different way, and, and historians are coming to see it in that way, that there was really kind of one continuum of the efforts of removal. Um, and within those efforts of, of removal of, of the Seminoles was this, this companion effort by the, the U.S. government, the U.S. Army, and citizens um, to re-enslave uh, blacks who had come into Florida to gain their freedom. And so the first what we, could, we used to consider the first war, but kind of the beginning of the Civil Wars uh, was in 1817 when Andrew Jackson came into Florida, which was a Spanish territory. So he basically invaded a foreign country um, in an effort to to tamp down the Seminoles, but also to recover um, the uh, some escaped enslaved people who'd come into North Florida, the Pensacola area. Um, and then the second phase of that war was really where Fort Brook here in Tampa became involved. And that was, again, traditionally known as the Second Seminole War, which lasted from 1835 to 1842. And not only was, was Fort Brook in, in Tampa, because Fort Brook was right in what is now downtown Tampa, was the U.S. headquarters, the Army headquarters for the war. It also was the largest gathering point for Seminoles who were then sent um, to the Indian Territory out west. So coming through Fort Brook, then going to Egmont Key, and then leaving from Egmont Key to New Orleans by ship, 
than to take part in the Trail of Tears uh, going to going west to the Indian Territory. This was the last piece of land that that many Seminoles saw, but also it was a place where um, where blacks could be separated from those Seminoles. And, and I was telling you right the other day, we actually have a book that um, is in our care. It's a Hillsborough County kind of official ledger book that dates from the 1830s and 1840s. And in it, you can actually see testimony that was given by Seminoles who had to prove their ownership of the, the black companions, in some cases, their spouses, um, to prove that they actually officially owned them so they could take them with them. So in, basically in an effort to keep their families together. Um, and otherwise, they would have been separated and those uh, otherwise you know, freed blacks would have been returned into a state of slavery. And so, and again, that all happened right here in downtown Tampa. And uh, if you're just joining us, that's the, the voice of Rodney Kite Powell, the Tampa Bay History Center's director of the Touched and Map Library. The History Center just opened up a new permanent exhibit, Travails and Triumphs, which traces more than 500 years um, of people of African descent who have lived um, and labored here um, in, in Tampa Bay. Um, it's like super enlightening to, to read that crossover between Tampa Bay's first black residents and, and, and the Seminoles. And I don't know if you want to handle this question, um, Rodney, or if we want to kick it to Fred, but, you know, um, Juneteenth is, is on Monday. That happened in Texas in, in June 19. But what about Florida's Eman- Emancipation Day? Um, let's, nobody really talks about that, but I, I feel like we should. I don't know if that's a Fred question or <laughs> something for Rodney. I would love, yeah, I would love Fred to take that one because that really is an, an important part of our story. Well, thank you, Rodney, and and thank WMNF. And actually, finally, there are some folk in central Tampa who are aware of Florida Emancipation Day, which was May 20th, 1865. You know, I love to tell people that emancipation depended on when the Union Army showed up. Mm -hmm. And so we know that May 20th, 1865 is when the Emancipation Proclamation was proclaimed to be the law of the land in Tallahassee, our state capital. And so uh, it began in Leon County with this annual celebration, and it spread throughout different pockets of the state. And every May 20th or around May 20th, we have a annual celebration in Brooksville, Chinsegut Hill, which is uh, the former site of a plantation where there were uh, many black people who lived there during the starting uh, in the 1840s. And so up to the current day, the Tampa Bay History Center manages that project. It's a historic house where we do tours uh, on the weekends and every May 20th or the Saturday close to May 20th. For the last two years, we've had a Florida Emancipation Day celebration. So being the Tampa Bay History Center, you know, we love to talk about Tampa history, Tampa Bay history, and Brooksville is part of Tampa Bay. So we're trying to help spread the word. May 20th, 1865, that's the Florida Emancipation Day. Now, that does not take away from Juneteenth. But we know that Juneteenth began in Galveston Bay, Texas, 1865, a whole month after May 20th. So I think it's important for us to, to know all this history. And Rodney also knows that I also like to talk about May 6th, 1864 a whole year before Juneteenth. Freedom came to most of the blacks, and I'm saying most because there were a few exceptions. Most of the blacks living in Tampa got their freedom on May 6, 1864. Those are three different dates. We don't want to confuse people 
But again, it depended on when the Union Army showed up uh, with the force to enforce this liberation. It's a riff off of that. How significant is the population of, of folks who self-emancipated using, you know, there were these Confederate sm- uh, smuggling vessels and there was a big fight against those. How many people self-emancipated out of that? Do we have a good number on that? I don't know if we can pinpoint an exact number, but we know that while the Union Army was coming into this area during the Civil War, those blacks who could escape and were transported out of this area with uh, on the mm-hmm. Union ships uh, Rodney mentioned Egmont Key. That's a, an excellent example, uh, not very far from the coast of Pinellas County. So they were leaving whenever and wherever they could during the Civil War. We had all this upheaval. And, uh, you know, as Rodney also said, Fort Brooke, uh, which is pretty much where Channel Side is now, the Tampa Convention Center, uh, that area, uh, there were blacks who were leaving this area whenever they got the opportunity. Those who stayed eventually settled in the area we know as the Scrub, just a little bit northeast of downtown Tampa. And that was the genesis of what we now know as historic Central Avenue, the Black Business District, and also where many blacks who settled here live. The Scrub. and Can you tell us about the Scrub, sir, and, and how that came to be and sort of what it might have been like, uh, step back in time a little bit? Well, for those blacks who stayed in this area, you know, because of racism, segregation, discrimination, there were certain areas where they could live and there were many other areas where they could not live. It was acceptable for these black people to settle in. They had to live somewhere. Uh, So it was acceptable for them to settle in that area, uh, if I can describe it now where people would know what I'm talking about, between downtown Tampa and Ybor City. That's primarily the area that we know as the scrub, named for these small palmetto-type bushes that were scrub bushes. There were thousands of them in the area. And so they dug those out. They made homes. They built churches. They opened businesses. And that's where they settled. And even today, now much of that area is known as Encore Public Housing, owned by the Tampa Housing Authority. But we know that 100 years ago, about... 8,000 black people lived in that area of the 20,000 black people who made up the population of Tampa. So, I mean, more than a third of the blacks in Tampa lived in the scrub area 100 years ago. And if you're just joining us here on The Skinny, that's the voice of Fred Hearns, the Tampa Bay History Center's first curator of black history. should know uh, Fred was born in the Bronx, raised in East Tampa, is an alum of Middleton and the University of South Florida. He was a journalist, uh, worked at the Florida Sentinel Bulletin, the Times, the Tribune, all over the state. There's actually old copies of the Sentinel Bulletin in the exhibits, which are fascinating. And he had a 32-year career uh, with the city of Tampa as its human rights director, as where he landed in 1992, retired in 2007 as a director of Department of Community Affairs. Fred, I want to get personal here. Your Letterman jacket is in the exhibit. So two questions. <laughs> One, do you still fit into that thing? And, and what is it like to have that jacket enshrined in the exhibit? I can still get one of my arms in the jacket. <laughs> That's about it. No, I, I, my father bought this jacket for me back in 1962. And I wore that jacket every day when I was a student at Middleton High School. I don't care how hot it was outside. I put that maroon and gold wool jacket on because I love Middleton just that much. So, yes, it is part of the exhibit. And uh, also a book that I wrote in 2007, 
which kind of chronicles the reestablishment of Middleton High School after a 31-year absence, is also part of the exhibit. And there was another question. What was the other question you asked? No, I mean, I was just, you kind of hit on it there. I was just wondering what it's like to see, you know, something that you wore and then you felt so much pride in wearing. You talk oh, about, you know, oh. every kid knows what it's like to have a cool, well, I guess not every kid gets a, got to be a letterman, but, you know, wear that jacket on a hot day because the jacket was so cool. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, with the Middleton jacket is a Howard W. Blake High School mm-hmm. letterman jacket. Uh, that jacket represents uh, a gift from Leroy Long, who was probably the greatest black tennis player to come out of Tampa. It's his Letterman jacket from Blake High School. So it's got the B on it, black and gold. It's got a tennis racket. It's got a tennis ball on the racket. Leroy Long got a tennis scholarship uh, to go to Florida a University. And had it not been for the racism that we know uh, stifled the careers of many black people, Leroy Long could have been on the professional tennis uh, circuit. I mean, he was that good. But he still lives here in Tampa. He donated the jacket. We've got some other items that were donated uh, by folks who are still with us. And it, it feels e- excellent. It feels really good to see those things on display. And I like hearing you talk about this kind of era, this modern era, because it starts to feel real, real, you know. And walking the exhibits, it, it really started to feel real, um, you know, as opposed to reading about it in a history book or through logs and then through an understanding like Rodney has. When you get to building free communities in this post-U.S. Civil War era, you've mentioned the scrub, a lot of racial racial violence and inmanity in Polk County, so that's detailed in there. And then some really significant milestones, too. Um, Adam um, Holloman and landing on the Hillsborough County Commission, Peter Bryant becoming a justice of the peace, um, Isaac Howard, his role in the Republican Party here. And and there's a lot of modern... I thought about something when I was there. Right now, there's a lot of talk about in Florida about legislation that's been passed to quote-unquote so-called crackdown on immigration. And a lot of that has affected labor. And labor is something that uh, it plays big in travails and triumph with uh, you know folks from the Deep South and Caribbean. They worked on railroads. You mentioned that on, on Down and Dirty. They harvested citrus, rolled cigars. They were long Shoreman. I mean, just across the street, you mentioned Encore. Perry Harvey Senior Park is named for a leader of the Longshoremen's Local, uh, 1402. Um, how much of that history of labor is still alive today, and what is the black community's role in the labor that keeps Tampa Bay going t- this very day? Well, the International Longshoremen Association, Local 1402, is still very active, very much alive. Uh, you did mention Perry Harvey. Perry Harvey was uh, the second president. Many people think he was the first, but he was the second president of that Longshoreman Association back in 1935. And he remained president until the early 1970s. Upon his death, his son, Perry Harvey Jr., who was the first black elected to the Tampa City Council in the 20th century, took his father's place. And for the next 30 years, Perry Harvey Jr. was president of the International Longshoreman Association. The Longshoremen helped to create the black middle class in Tampa. That was a place where no matter how little education you had, you could get a job. If you were willing to do that very physically demanding work of loading and unloading ships, very dangerous. There were some men who lost their lives, some men who were injured, including my uncle, uh, who was injured in one of those uh, accidents on one of the ships. But the job paid well, and they could work overtime. And there were professional black people who would go to some of the longshoremen to borrow money. I mean, it was a good place to work, all things considered, for black people. So, yes, that was important. We do have a crate from the banana docks. That was big Mm -hmm. business here 
uh, importing bananas from the Caribbean and South America. And that's part of our exhibit. Tells a little bit of the story of the, the longshoremen. And by the way, if you want to ask a question of Fred or Rodney, the phone number is 813-239-9663. You can email dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. We're talking about a new exhibit at the Tampa Bay History Center, which traces 500 years of black history um, in Tampa Bay. You know, staying on on, on Perry Harvey, you talked about uh, the railroads and, and its role, the longshoremen, and then the Jim Crow era kind of plays into this. And there's also a little bit about Tampa's once long-running uh, white municipal party. And, and going back to Perry Harvey, he's one of those pioneering elected officials. You know, And then we take it all the way to Barbara Tripp, who is the current fire chief, who's been in the news a lot lately. Um, as a historian, I mean, this is kind of crazy because you've worked for the city too, but as a historian, what's your view on, on how far or how or not far enough Tampa has come since uh, the white municipal party when it comes to representation for black residents? We could do several shows talking about the impact <laughs> of the white municipal party, but I'll just take two minutes. Okay. Uh, from 1910 to 1947, blacks could not vote in the municipal elections. I believe this came about because in 1908, a black attorney, well-respected, Z.D. Green, applied to run for a judgeship, a local judgeship. Mm -hmm. He filed the paperwork. He did everything he was supposed to do. And then just days before the election, he was told his paperwork had been lost. And so his name did not appear on the ballot. Two years later, we see the birth of the white municipal party. Now, I was born in 1948. The white municipal party uh, on paper uh, lasted until 1947, although some people have said there were, it lasted a little bit longer than that. So this was not in, in ancient history. I mean, this was pretty much during the early part of my lifetime, where blacks had literally no political power except that which some whites decided to share with them. Uh, Cody Fowler is a name that we need to remember when we talk about black history in Tampa because time after time we see that Cody Fowler came to the rescue and stood up for black folk who needed support because we had no legal, local elected official representation. And actually, as I said, I might have said this earlier, it was not until 1983 that the first black person served on the city council in the 20th century, and that was Perry wow. Harvey Jr. All those years, no local black representation. And so we're, we've been trying to play catch up ever since. It's fascinating. I, I want to bring up the fact that uh, Monday night, right, uh, we have this evening with uh, Bernard Lafayette Jr. Yes. Uh, and, Fred, if you can talk about that, because, it's, of course, it's going to be on Juneteenth on uh, Monday. And I read a little bit about this gentleman. I didn't, I, you know, I, I think I know a lot about Tampa, our historical figures here who are still living. I did not know about Mr. Lafayette Jr. So tell us more about him and, and what the talk's going to be about on Monday night. Bernard Lafayette Jr. is a real Tampa treasure. Born and raised in Ebor City. He graduated from Middleton High School in 1958. He had a scholarship to go to Florida and M University, but he decided he wanted to go into the ministry as a teenager. He went to American Baptist Seminary in Nashville, Tennessee. Lo and behold, who do you think his roommate wound up being? Future Congressman John Lewis. They were roommates in college. They actually used to wear each other's clothes. So John Lewis started going to these workshops, these nonviolent workshops, uh, where they were learning about 
demonstrations and how to conduct yourself and sit-ins and so forth, Bernard Lafayette was right there with Don Lewis. And their lives kind of shadowed each other. But Bernard Lafayette was always content to stay in the background, to do the work behind the scenes. And so that's why his name is not a household name. But fast forward, he was actually in the Lorraine Motel the night before Dr. King was assassinated that following day at the Lorraine Motel. So Bernard Lafayette is going to share some of his experience with us uh, beginning at uh, 6.30 p.m. on Monday. This is a free event. Uh, all the tickets are sold for the in-person attendees, but you can register online to see the talk virtually at TampaBayHistoryCenter.org. We encourage people to register online and learn more about a real Tampa treasure. And we actually have a phone call coming yeah, in here. Yeah, guys, uh, let's go into the phone lines here. We've got George from Ybor City who wants to make a contribution. Hi, George. Hello, I have three questions. One, is it true the Seminole Indians are the only Native American group that has never officially surrendered? Number two, is there any tunnels underneath Ybor City? And number three, when the um, slave, runaway slaves in, uh, came down to Florida, uh, when when was it where that ended, where you couldn't be safe in Florida? You know, was there a period where you were safe in Florida? And, and Rodney, Fred dropped out, so hoping Fred will call back in. Could you speak to some of those questions, Rodney? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, uh, first question. I got my memory so bad. And Fred's uh, coming back here question? too. Um. So the second question was Ebor tunnels. There absolutely are tunnels in Ebor City. Um, they're, they're how, used how do we find them, Rodney? Can I, I get them today? <laughs> yeah, you can't get there. Can't get there from here. Um, but the 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 reason why is very you know underwhelming. Uh, they likely were sewer tunnels and storm drains. Um, they were they were installed probably in the 1890s. Uh, prior to the, the city's kind of widespread sewer system that was done in the 1920s. They all lead down to um, what is now Ebor Channel. Um, but they're pretty big. I've actually uh, been very fortunate to have been in one of them. Um, and, and just because they were built for one purpose doesn't mean they were used. They weren't used for other purposes. Um, you know, the <laughs> bringing in um, uh, uh, people from, from Cuba illegally, um, although the, you know, the legal process was quite... Um, easy. Although uh, Gary Marmino, uh, kind of the dean of, of Ybor history, uh, speculates that maybe um, uh, immigrants of, of Chinese descent from Cuba were, were brought in, which would have been illegal. Um, and they may have been used, of course, during Prohibition. But uh, but Gary also points out uh, the very real fact that you didn't need to hide smuggling. Uh, everybody was on the take. You know, literally <laughs> a police officer sitting in, you know, a cafe would hold the door open for a bootlicker as they brought in liquor from the front door. So, um, so th their, their use has been overblown They're because of their presence. It's, it's such a tantalizing thing. Um, and they may have been used very early on also to move money. Um, cause Ybor was a pretty dangerous wide open place, uh, early in its history. And, um, and so, and, and everything was, it was a cash business. And so they, there may have been a practical reason to have them. And that was just moving cash around. Um, I think George's the first, first question, question was, uh, the Seminoles were, were they, uh, it's commonly believed that they were the only tribe not to oh, yes, surrender. Is that great, true? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And, and yes, um, they, they are, then they, they, they proudly, hold themselves as being um, unconquered, you know, that the they are still technically at war with the U.S. government. 
Um, and that's the, the Florida Seminole and Florida Miccosukee. Those who are in Oklahoma um, don't quite have that distinction because they're in Oklahoma. Um, but no, the, the, the Seminole tribe of Florida and the uh, Miccosukee tribe of, of Indians in Florida, technically, they never signed a treaty. Um, and really, it was a war that was never officially declared through Congress. Um, so it's it's been one of those things, you know, if it's an undeclared war, how do you have a treaty to end that war? Um, but no, technically, they they never officially, you know, ended the war. They just stopped fighting for the time being. So, and then I think the war is now being waged in the various casinos they own. Right. And then the third question, um, I can also take, if Fred's not back yet, um, Florida was no longer a safe haven beginning in 1821. And that that's when Florida became a U.S. territory. Uh, Florida, or U.S. purchased uh, Florida from Spain. And that treaty was uh, was completed uh, the Adams and East Treaty was completed in 1821, and uh, Florida briefly was actually two separate territories with two capitals: um, East Florida with St. Augustine and Pensacola, with I mean West Florida, Pensacola, and Tallahassee is right between the two, and that's why Tallahassee is our our, our state capital today because it's between the two previous capitals of Florida. Okay, and that's the voice of Rodney Kite Powell. We're talking about Travails and Triumphs, a new permanent exhibit at the Tampa Bay History Center. It traces 500 years of black history um, in Tampa Bay. We're about to run out of time here, uh, Rodney. I was going to ask uh, Fred this, but in a minute, you know, so much of the there's so much history on these glory days of of, of black Tampa. Uh, where today in modern times do you think uh, you can experience the best of of, of black Tampa Bay um, that are glorified in, in this exhibit? Could you tell us in, in less than a minute? Wow, that's a fantastic question. Uh, there's, you know, some great neighborhoods, East Tampa, West Tampa, um, Rogers Park Golf Course, uh, founded um, by uh, black caddies from, from uh, Palmasia who yeah. made their own golf course because they weren't allowed to play there. Uh, that's a great place to go. Um, lots of restaurants, you know, one of the best ways to experience culture is through its food. Mm. And so you just like we go to Ybor City uh, to experience, you know, that Latin culture, you know, find your way to, to East Tampa or West Tampa mm. and, uh, and get yourself some, some good food. Right on. You've been listening to The Skinny here on WMNF Tampa. Thank you to our guests, Rodney Kite Powell and Fred Hearns, Skip Sassy, our board operator, DJ Spaceship on the phones on behalf of Mitch Perry from the Florida Phoenix, an esteemed Pulitzer finalist, journalist, and author, Ben Montgomery. My name is Ray Rowe. I'm the editor of Creative Loafing Tampa. Thanks for listening to WMNF Tampa.